Hi, I'm Violet Luca, Film Comment Digital Editor. This week's episode is all about one director, Brian De Palma. He's the subject and the star of a new documentary by fellow directors Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow, in which he offers insights on his work, going over it in chronological order. De Palma is also the subject of a complete retrospective at the Metrograph Theater in New York. In the first segment, I speak with Paltrow and Baumbach about making the new film and their relationship to De Palma's work. In the second segment, I sit down with Michael Koreski, editorial director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and the critic Ashley Clark to discuss the auteur's body of work. We'll start with the interview first. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and today I am joined by... Jake Paltrow. And Noah Baumbach. And we're going to be talking about your guys' film, The Palma, which is... Great. It's one of those great uh, filmmakers, speaking with filmmakers, films. I guess the obvious question would be, why make this film in an age of DVD, Blu-ray, commentary, when there's so much scholarship about films and film studies out there? Well, I think for us, the big thing was making this movie about our friend. You know, it, it was born out of these conversations we were having with Brian, where he was speaking to us in a very unguarded way about his experiences making movies. Mm-hmm. And I think we realized at a certain point, if he would speak to us on camera the way he spoke to us at dinner, we'd probably have something quite special. Initially, I think we thought it would be maybe even just for us. We didn't intend to necessarily be a movie, but very quickly when we started filming, we realized it was probably going to be its own movie. And it was also specifically not a work of scholarship. It was a conversation between friends, as Jake says, and also between directors and people who have common experience and and I guess we felt like if it was interesting to us it would be interesting to other people. I mean you guys completely remove yourself from this and it's incredibly intimate and what was the interview process like because I understand you did like over 300 hours or something. No 30, 30. between 30 and 40 hours um, Extra but we definitely thought about it and I mean you know, we often talk like the directing of the movie was really the editing of it, and the and the rest of it is trying to get him to say things we've heard before. And then there's obviously a lot of things that we're hearing for the first time while interviewing him. But we're thinking about continuity. He's wearing the same, you know, outfit in all the interviews. But the idea is to start from the beginning and really just do it sort of movie by movie. You mentioned him being unguarded. Do you feel like you got? Not just because of the place he sort of is in terms of his career, but also just because he's not really making films in Hollywood system anymore. And also, obviously, because you're friends, but you got to dig deeper than you would have otherwise. It's the friends part. The, the way that you talk about your work and the things you're working on and all that sort of stuff with a friend is a lot different than you're going to talk about it sort of in an interview. And Brian is a very electric an articulate sort of person. And so it just lends itself to a certain cinematic quality. But, you know, if you didn't know him, I don't, I don't know if we would get the same result. Right. We're talking to you differently than we would be talking to, to, (laughs) to each other or with somebody who we knew well and didn't have a microphone and tape recorder. And, and, and because we did it, you know, in a familiar environment, it was Jake's apartment and it was, casual and we had no lights it was all natural 
light. And the feeling was, let's just have a wide-ranging, open, honest conversation, and we can all check it later and make sure if there's anything, you know, Brian didn't want in there, we would take out. But when Brian saw the movie, he was good with it all. I mean, I think he just felt it was it was honest and it was him and and he was behind that. Also, the way into it is, you know, we're going through the movies, so it's not like we're asking questions about his personal life or any of that sort of stuff. Sometimes it segues with things that are going on in his life. But in a way, I think for people that are interested in movies or creative people that are interested in other creative people, like, it's cooler when that's the part of it that segues with the work, the personal life segues with the work as opposed to sort of like working from the personal life in. Yeah, I mean, it's not analytical or journalistic in any kind of overt way. It's really... It was it was it was very matter of fact. It was where did you grow up and then how did you make your first movie and, and onward. One of the most moving parts of the film is, or at least to me, uh, was when he was talking uh, when he's talking about like how he really feels that Hitchcock created this visual language and no one has carried it on and that's sort of been his goal in his career. Did you ever sort of get into, or maybe you could just offer as to to why that sort of fell out of style, like even things like split screen or any of this stuff? I guess the bigger thing that Brian's talking about is that it, it's less that he's like doing a Hitchcock thing and more that what Hitchcock was doing was speaking in a language, in a cinematic language, and that right. he consistently carried on with that language and, you know, formed this sort of dialect or something. Right. Of his own and you know it was something that I hadn't even thought of and the way he says it I mean in a way that was that's like the big moment for me in the in the movie sort of and I still carry that around and think about that and then think about it in terms of other you know film directors and creative people that idea that you have something very singular and you know it doesn't mean that you're appropriating right and it's not derivative no, like, right. in any way but it's because like the and I think that's again that's sort of what makes it interesting is that he's saying it's like basically speaking that same language in his film yeah, like, it's, a yeah. it's a beautiful concept you yeah. know sort of in a way and yeah. you know, it certainly isn't limited to movies right. right and that this language is available to anybody yeah and, right. and, <laughs> and he's he's you know he's the only one speaking it yeah like catch water or something, like just like dying out or something. But yeah, no, I mean, I no, it was, it was just sort of because we always talk about like the grammar, you know, the syntax of classical Hollywood or like the syntax of a genre or the semantics of a genre and that it's just sort of like Hitchcockian gets thrown around so much that, you know, in, inappropriately, like wildly inappropriately to any thriller. And then there are certain visual things that just don't get carried along or, or they've just sort of died out in contemporary filmmaking, but I guess you you never sort of supposed as to why, or is it just like technicians don't like to do it, or it's sort of gone? And, well, and some of it's been absorbed almost invisibly now. I mean, it is so. I mean, he was so influential that I feel like some of what he's he did is now taken for granted in how you set up a moment of suspense. I mean, Brian does it in a very Brian way, but it's. But then there's what I think what Brian's speaking to is something different. You know, it's it's you know the way Brian says the movie is very is very clear. I feel like the the popularized version of it is almost like the way it's been metabolized into what we think of as like the formula. Right. You know, and and that's certainly not what Brian's talking about. 
how did the editing process go for this? There's a chronological continuity. How long to spend on each movie, how long to spend on various clips versus him talking. I mean, it was just a, I mean, in some ways not incredibly different than, you know, I think my experience or speak for Jake, his experience, uh, you know, cutting a narrative movie. I mean, you still have the same considerations of what, you know, you know, what, what is this movie's particular rhythm and, you know, and of course you could do this, you could do it different ways and put more in and break it up into segments or something like that. But we wanted to, to, to do it in a kind of movie length and, and, and sort of have it, you know, be a kind of great movie experience you know, on its own. He's obviously seen, you know, rough cuts of your own films. How has that influenced your process or those notes? Like, what has that been like, I guess, just on a personal level for you and also as, you know, on a professional level? Yeah, well, I mean, I've known Brian, as Jake has, for many years now. So mm-hmm. I've, I've now, you know, going back to my second movie, I think, I mean, every one of them I've shown Brian both the script in certain stages and then the, the finished movie in certain stages. And, you know, he's a great viewer and obviously has great suggestions and great insight. And, you know, we'll all argue. I, I remember I, I, on my last movie, Jake and Brian came in and saw a cut of While We're Young together. And, you know, then they launched into some argument <laughs> about the movie, which was... Uh, Maybe not particularly helpful to me in the long run, <laughs> but uh, um, no, it was it was it, it was actually, and and so it's part of you know he he's he is as is Jake or you know the the, the people I bring in you know at, you know when I really feel like I need new eyes on a on a movie. It's good showing Brian stuff because he's somebody who has your best interest in mind, but he's can be quite rough. You know, I think often friends are careful with the way they say things because they're encouraging you through the process. I think Brian's been through this for, for so long, there's, there, there isn't a gentle touch to it, <laughs> which on the other side is sort of great in a very quick response way when he likes something. Right. It's sort of like, you know, yeah. like right away, you're probably in pretty good shape if this is just like, oh, no, great. You know, and just like, that's sort of always a nice right, feeling. Right. <laughs> you know, practical matters, like running a set, not just sort of post-work. Do you feel like you've approached film in a different way after this after this experience or just through your relationship with him? I mean, there are definitely things that I feel like, you know, Brian has taught us about that aren't even necessarily so direct, but they're things you absorb over time. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, things would be more, maybe more extreme the way He's doing it, you know, six decades into a career. But you're thinking about some of the things he's talking about and the experiences he's had. Like, I remember he told me early on, you have to be impossible. And that always sort of... There's there's so many layers to that idea. You know, that doesn't mean you just only do it your way, but you... I mean, to me, my interpretation of that and the way that he said it was sort of like, you know, don't deviate from the plan, you know, stick to that thing against us, whether the forces against you are like people or the weather or whatever those things are, you're sort of keeping your eye on what's through the telescope, you know. I think less through the experience of the movie, because the movie in a way is a kind of document of our already existing relationship with Brian, but but certainly through my 
friendship with Brian and um, I, I, I will think like how would Brian do this like what would be the Brian version <laughs> of this shot or I mean, what makes Brian's movies one of the things that makes Brian's movies so thrilling is every sequence has a great idea behind it you know and, and, and a really distinct idea mm-hmm. uh, you know which he, he talks about in the movie too I mean whether he's doing the sort of point of view shot you know in The Untouchables mm-hmm. you know and he's taken it from like a kind of almost like a cheesy horror movie idea but he's like doing it for real he's and <laughs> and, 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 and making it great and very emotional too mm-hmm. and um, you know, so I, I definitely have those thoughts even though you know whatever my interpretation of it might become pretty much invisible to anybody else <laughs> but uh, but it, it's it is it is a kind of helpful and productive way of thinking about you know how to film something to close do you mind saying a favorite or favorites it's hard to say a favorite. I mean, the one that I find myself keep talking about just because it's been in my mind since we finished it is Carlitos. I, I, I just keep going back something about maybe it's the, when he made it, it's so accomplished, but it has all the things in it that you would think of as like sort of the ultimate De Palma. And it's just very beautiful and emotional. And So I've been thinking it's not necessarily my favorite, but it's the one that I keep talking about. Yeah, I, I definitely undersold Carlitos at the time. I mean, as a kid, The Untouchables for me was sort of like the, in a way, it was like the the kind of movie going experience that I I kind of wanted everything to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember when I saw that for the first time, I was just like that rush that you know that I got from it, and I felt like, oh, I wish I could get this from you know. It's like trying to chase some kind of drug (laughs) experience that you once had and get it again and again. But that movie, and that movie still does it for me every time I I see it. Um, Again, I don't think, no, that's my favorite, but it's, uh, it was amazing that how Brian made a kind of, uh, you know, a a mainstream movie, but did it so much his own way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I interviewed Bill Pankow, who uh, edited, uh, yeah, you know, (laughs) like I need to tell you, um, but it was. But talking with him about Carlito's way, it's so funny because it's like that movie really has no right to be as good as it is. Like it's just like reverse Scarface, and with again with Pacino. And it, but then it's just it's so moving. And then the the big shootout, like, and it just keeps going, and it's not boring. And it just really, yeah. If anyone else had made that film, it would not have been nearly as good. Like it really, you like you say, you feel that energy, and it's also very old-fashioned in, in that it's, yeah. it's I mean it is like an old noir it's like mm-hmm. the story of him running to like get the tickets to get yeah. to the train I mean it's a train yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a train, yeah. it's a train yeah and um, the, we all know the you know whatever the Anthony Mann version of that from the <laughs> 40s you know well thank you both for participating it's been thank a little bit yeah. yeah thank you and now Here's my conversation with Michael Koreski and Ashley Clark. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Michael Koreski. I'm editorial director at Film Society of Lincoln Center and Film Comet Magazine. And uh, I wrote the Dress to Kill essay for Criterion Collection, and I'm a big Brian De Palma fan. Uh, Ashley Clark, uh, contributor to Film Comet, Vice, The Guardian, uh, Reverse Shot, among others, uh, and a film programmer. 
and also a fan of Brian De Palma. In the last segment, I interviewed Jake Paltrow and Noah Baumbach about their film, De Palma. Maybe we could sort of begin by talking about our reactions to the documentary, and then we can move into talking about Brian De Palma in general, because, you know, in an age of hashtag problematic, as Michael said, um, (laughs) Brian De Palma maybe needs a little, not massaging, but uh, you have to sort of look at this a certain way. Well, if for no other reason, I think the documentary is, is really valuable so that we can open up another dialogue about Brian De Palma, who's a, uh, I think few people would disagree, is one of the most ex- technically exciting virtuosic filmmakers of the last 50 years or so. Yeah. Um, and for you know whatever ideological reasons people may have issues with him or whatever concerns around the idea of borrowing an homage they may have with him, I think that you really need to start with the just the love that he has for cinema the technical audacity that he has and maybe what he's playing off of the film historical precedents that he's playing off of and i think the film uh, the documentary de palma does really well at maybe underlining the those things that matter of course there are a lot of other things that matter talking about de palma and as ashley was saying just now to me the documentary doesn't necessarily go into those things whether it has to or not is a whole other debate but certainly inciting debate around those issues and the film is pretty important. Yeah, I agree with, with kind of with what you said about the film being, you know, having some of, of being of certain value. It was kind of remarkable for how uninterested it was in communicating to non-fans. It's very, it assumes a lot of prior knowledge to the extent, I think, that I was quite taken aback. Late in the film, Brian De Palma says to the camera, oh, you guys, meaning Jake Paltrow and Noah Baumbach, filmmakers, they're not introduced at all in the film. Right. So, you know, a casual audience member, of, a casual viewer of this film would have no idea that these guys were behind the camera. That was who Brian was addressing. For me as a fan, its primary function was to kind of make me want to go and watch his films <laughs> again mm-hmm. and, and look at them in a new light, which I think serves a similar function to to a good monograph about a film or a a good kind of overview article, the kind of thing that makes you want to go away and look at things in a bit more depth. I actually had a slightly different reaction, even though I agree with what you're saying, which is that... We don't have to agree with each other. (laughs) We usually don't. It's so much more interesting if you don't. (laughs) So please continue. Uh, No, it's just just a slight slight difference. Uh, My response was that I feel like the film... Is maybe for the fans, but is not necessarily interesting for true Church to Palma people. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's because we have talked about these particular things and thought about these particular things so much, and because the film wants to hit on every single movie, it feels like it really breezes and brushes over his career. Absolutely, and, and of course, I just feel like. Femme Fatale is incredibly shortchanged. Any mm-hmm. true De Palma fan knows this is one of the major films, and it has maybe a couple sentences, and, he, and it doesn't dig into that film at all. It's guided, I think, probably by the filmmaker's tastes, too. I mean, you're quite right. It skips over the last few years of his career. I mean, I know he hasn't been prolific in the last few years, but the last few films he's made, it skips over them in a matter of moments. Mm. And sometimes things that are perceived as failures or have not been you know, well, critically well-received or box office hits, it's tempting to take the easy way out and dismiss them when, in fact, it's often these films that are more worthy of examination. 
That's true, but it's that's also a byproduct of the structure of the film or the concept of the film, which is that it lets De Palma do all the talking. So often filmmakers themselves don't necessarily have the best perspectives on their own work because they are ruled by studio concerns, industry concerns. Like, for instance, often a hugely successful filmmaker like Steven Spielberg won't always be the best person to listen to talk about mm. his films because he's so concerned with success that some of his less successful films he might think were failures when in fact they were the most interesting films. I think that probably happened with the Palma a lot too. It can be fascinating though, um, I'm thinking of Miles Davis who in interviews in the 80s was convinced that his synth jams from the 80s were his best work and (laughs) were the things that were really going to stand the test of time. So sometimes, you know, artists have incredible clashing perspectives with the the kind of the the norms of, you know, what people think. It's their work. I feel like I came to De Palma relatively recently. I remember in film school really uh, watching that scene from Body Double with the drill probably like four or five times. You should say phallic drill. (laughs) Just for people who haven't seen it, who are listening. I'm feeling, I feel like, okay, yeah. Maybe the most phallic murder in mainstream movie history? Yeah, usually it was shown in the context of like talking about films and misogyny, Hollywood and misogyny. So prime the pump against that and it just felt like so overdone and everything about the scene just like irked me. His most popular films like thinking of Scarface, how the cultural legacy of that is so much more interesting than the film itself, or at least to me. Um, that's debatable. Debatable. No, they're cer- they're certainly both interesting, and the, yeah. and the cultural legacy around Scarface is is maybe the thing that makes one dislike it more, considering right. who you're talking to. But the actual film itself is rather beautiful and interesting and strange. But actually, just to two things. One is that the accusations of misogyny that were leveled at De Palma around the time of Body Double mm-hmm. in 1984 were actually found their their greatest blossoming in Film Comment magazine, which it's is true. There was a there was a, an interview and I forget her Marcia name. Marsha Pally. Exactly. Yeah, it's a famous interview because she really takes him to task and and drills him as it were um, <laughs> about Ooh. about that film. Um, that just came to me. And it's really interesting that basically with body double he was making that film for that explicit purpose he had he was sick after film after film of people telling him that he was a misogynist as mm-hmm. opposed to somebody who was actually examining these things so he made body double to piss off <laughs> people well, right. e- even the title is a response to andrew dickinson you, you right. use of a body double in dress to kill yes which so kind of deepens the the layers of piss-taking <laughs> the layers of piss-taking in body double are so profound yes <laughs> that, i mean we're talking about buckets of piss right it's just one after another, sloshing well, yeah. big buckets of overflowing piss yeah like, a, like the frankie goes to hollywood sequence i mean like oh, the, ca- the casting of craig wasson oh in general. Yeah. oh ashley oh, loves talking about craig i do Wasson. i do please, now, please. now that i have control of the airwaves <laughs> i'd like to um take this moment to recommend you all pause the podcast go and watch the video for have me arrested by Craig Wasson, star of Body Double, which is incredible. It's on YouTube and it's a kind of, if you like, your kind of cod reggae. What's interesting in the documentary department is he's moderately challenged at times, I think, more, more as a co- conversation point. And he's in t- completely unrepentant. You know, they yeah. ask him about the drill and he's like, well, if it was going to go through the floor, it had to be a big drill. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's not offering, you know, he knows what he's doing and he's not, offering any you know he doesn't engage necessarily in the topic he says things in the film like it's more fun to follow women around than men yeah i like looking at women he says that a lot he's absolutely confident in expressing his voyeuristic tendencies as a filmmaker but then 
But then there's also this very moving part where he talks about his father having an affair and how he followed his father, you know, and he confronted him. And it's one of those great moments where it sort of like turns received wisdom about him on its head. Okay, so again, like another problem I had as a youth <laughs> uh, with default was just the insane level of quotation where it's just like, man, write your own fucking movies. Mm. But, but then it's like, but then it's like, okay, so he's taking Hitchcock, he's taking this visual language, and he's making it personal, knowing that the voyeurism isn't just coming from like this scopophilic pleasure that it's coming from like this weird place of pain. So did, did finding that out in the film kind of retroactively change your perspective on on what you've seen of his no i think i mean i sort of came around to him watching more recently the films and you know things so re so watching all of body double and not just the drill part um watching femme fatale watching carlito's way a movie that has should by all rights be terrible but is actually so fantastic it's really fantastic well of course is a, a great film about explicitly about the things we're talking about yes but to take a step back because i always feel very uncomfortable talking about brian de palma without taking a big step back and going to the beginning because yeah. these are not all the things we're talking about are not just our interpretations or, or our analysis if you look at brian de palma's career from the beginning it's a very clear trajectory from moving from these experimental films you know he was called the american godard in the late 60s with films like greetings and hi mom mm-hmm. and he was v- very um much looking at voyeurism his movies were about voyeurs about peep shows about politics about the left and he was always interrogating the image from an early age and this was not an interpretation that critics or academics are putting on his work. So by the time he gets to Sisters in 1973, mm-hmm. which was a film modeled on the basic structure of Psycho, by the time he gets there, what he's doing is not saying, maybe I can get away with making my version of Psycho. He's making an actual critical study of the movie Psycho mm-hmm. through this new film Sisters. And an incredibly clever, interesting, layered, beautifully made film it is. So... Sisters was really his entree into this new way of making movies, movies that were constantly thinking about film history, what Hitchcock was doing, how Hitchcock did it, reinterpreting what Hitchcock was doing, and then giving viewers a new experience while constantly making viewers think about the mechanics of filmmaking. He got into that groove and he kept going with it and he kept refining it until he made true masterpieces like Dress to Kill and Carrie and Blowout. But I think anyone who just says that he's borrowing things Mm -hmm. or even paying homage to things isn't really thinking about him in the right way. He's genuinely deconstructing film. Mm -hmm. And I believe that. And I think he does it brilliantly. And I think that some of the films he's made are equal to many of the films that Hitchcock made. It's interesting in the film in De Palma he takes issue with the idea of being branded a, a copyist and right. the idea that injecting some nobility into the art of appropriation and criticism so using film to critique at the same time and as you mentioned with things like Hi Mom he's the kind of layer upon layer of media films within films commenting on things that are actually happening in the world he's a smart guy yeah. obviously he knows what he's doing and that's another really important thing for me. Looking at all of his work, even the outre stuff and the, the very kind of provocative and challenging stuff and things you might think are disgusting and vile, it's always coming from the, the mind of a man who knows what he's doing. He's aware of the uh, political situations and developments in media, and he's using his films, uh, as Michael says, to kind of to constantly critique and probe. And I was wondering, to, to kind of 
he, he occupies an interesting position because you, he's accessible as as an as a mainstream movie maker. You know, he's done things like Mission Impossible and Scarface ha- has a kind of huge wide reach. It's a very accessible film. But at the same time, I do wonder whether to truly appreciate what he's doing. A great example is uh, Passion, most yeah. recently, a film that if you're some if you're a viewer who's not clued up with media criticism or the references that he's using whether you might just think this is like the red shoe diaries you know to, w- to what extent yeah. do you need to be clued in as a spectator to fully appreciate De Palma and 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 one way of thinking about a film like passion which yes might on the surface seem trashy well it is trashy it, it embraces trash mm-hmm. but one way to think about it is that there was a remake of a French movie called Love Crimes um, if you watch that movie you'll see the basic kind of structure and plot points but Passion's a very, very different film because he transforms the narrative into something that's about technology surveillance and new media, mm-hmm. and all of those things were not in the original. So he, yes, he's borrowing things. He's that, That's a literal remake of another movie, but in De Palma's hands, it becomes a completely different film. That's a movie about the sleekness of surfaces. The opening shot is the back of, a, of an Apple laptop as the camera rises, and you know, two women staring at it with these like... You know, lascivious looks. Well, and also um, the way their just the way their skin looks in that film, like the way everything is like, as you say, a touchable surface, like a smart surface. So it's an interesting movie, and of course, it has that almost like Verhoeven-y, trashy, like you call it, Red Shoe Diaries feel, um, and that kind of those kinds of movies make people feel guilty. So they they have their instant response has to be to to distance themselves. I remember going to see Femme Fatale on opening night. And it was actually a pretty packed house, and people were cheering and laughing and enjoying it. And when it was over, everybody on the way was saying, that was horrible. Everyone's walking <laughs> out saying, what a piece of crap, after they were thoroughly enjoying themselves. So there's that, there's that sense of people not uh, wanting to fess up to their own enjoyments of some of the pleasures that his movies have to offer. Which reflects back to what, you know, his openness as an interview subject to talk about his, his fondness for following women around. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that actually crosses all kinds of gender lines. And I mean, I'm a gay man, and I absolutely love watching women mm. on film. And uh, I, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a misogynist or sexist thing. I think that there are aesthetic pleasures to be had. I think Fem Femme Fatale is an interesting case also because it has a huge gay following. Femme Fatale appeals almost equally to horny straight men and gay men, and I think a lot of women like it too. Violet, I love Femme Fatale. Yeah. Just even what happens in the last like 30 minutes of that movie is so incredible. And if you again, like if you want to talk about deconstructing film and like the necklace, the way that functions, it's just, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Femme Fatale like, is a good example of a movie that is it was a completely original script by De Palma. And I don't really think that it's very much like anything else. It's obvious. It's taking some literal dialogue from Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. Um, not only in that great opening shot, they shows Double Indemnity, but she, she repeats that dialogue near the end. Yeah. So it's playing off of noir tropes. But the structure of that film is not quite like anything I've ever seen before. No, it's true. It goes back on itself a couple of times, but it goes back and then goes forward. It's so, yeah, it's really incredible. While making every shot beautiful and fascinating and, and, and strange. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the first half hour of that movie is com- is complete masterpiece, yeah. shot for shot. And also shows that Rebecca Romaine is actually an amazing actress. And she... It's and such she, a great she, vehicle for her, and it's like she's never had anything like that since. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Antonia Banderas playing a photographer. Yes. As well. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but it's coming back to me. 
Mm-hmm. At one point, sends up his own Almodovar persona by, yeah. by pretending to be a gay man yes. to get closer That's to right. her while she's pretending to be the wife of. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's everybody. <laughs> there's just layers of disguise. Yeah. Everyone's pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. And then the movie's pretending to be a movie in a sense. <laughs> and, and, and it's like Raising Cain, too, which is a movie in which there are, t- I think there's a dream and a flashback that turns out to be a dream of a flashback. I believe. <laughs> Really, another really strange and invigorating yeah. movie. John Lithgow. <laughs> One of the De Palma originals. Yeah. Yes. It's scary and blowout. Where he kind of, put, you know, that's another thing. Casting is interesting with him. Persisting oh, yeah. in casting him as a villain when he's known to everybody as the kind of the nice guy from Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> and Harry and the Hendersons. Harry and the Hendersons, yeah. Going back to Carlito's way, thinking, I mean, thinking about how uh, Scarface was originally received, which was... Specifically, Miami Cubans taking extreme issue with it because it, you know, taking the Mariel Boatlift and then just reinforcing the worst stereotypes about who was on that boat that the U.S. did take in. And then just like how just over the top everything was. But well, then this extraordinary act of minstrelsy. At yes. The, at the and, then, and then of the in film. Carlito's way, it's like he's like they're, like, they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could almost be you. You could pass for Italian. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that, that's one that's often <laughs> overlooked, actually, in, yeah. in, in discussion of, of these things, you know. Yeah. 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 With, you know, th- th- there's a lot of awareness now. There was, I mean, there always has been, but particularly since the whole Oscars, latest Oscar scandal last year about, right. you know race lifting and race bending and so on mm-hmm. and and uh, Al Pacino as uh, Tony Montana is quite an extraordinary example of sort of outsized caricature yeah i mean of he like Cuban that's guy. That, like no like no cuban person ever talked like that ever like it's just it's well he makes up his own language yeah, i mean it's exactly. just like, incredible it is just i'm not like, going to do the impression now i can see michael looking at me going to do it, do it. <laughs> no i i, should, I just wanted it. to i want you to say why maybe you think that it's not targeted or why that's been overlooked why people don't want to take scarface to task is it because of the the people who have embraced it i think de palma's in general embrace of artificiality plays into this like the idea of taking you know scarface to task on serious ideological grounds almost seems silly given the lurid tacky aesthetic of the film and how it's passed into the popular consciousness and it's become a, a gangster rap template totem right and it's become so just just endlessly quotable and yeah say hello to my etc etc <laughs> i don't know i mean it's it's not something i'd necessarily I, i've often thought why isn't this more picked up on for me, it just it, it's sort of indicative of well. First of all, I think the important distinction to make is that the majority of fans are black, not Latino. Like mm. it's like it is making that distinction, but then also to pretend as if all Latinos are the same. Like that myth. I mean, I don't know. It came I, it came out in this uh, Republican primary uh, race where it's like, oh yeah, maybe Marco Rubio, uh, Ted Cruz. Very light-skinned sons of Cuban immigrants, their experience in the United States, not indicative of the rest of any sort of Latino experience in the United States. But anyway, it's like, it's just so, for me, I felt like it, because it is, again, like it, the pleasure, the pleasures outweigh the problems in, in the, if, in the farther away you get from it. And I mean, also, it's just like, I don't even know Mario Boatliff in the grand scheme of immigration in the United States or the United States relationship with Cuba, it's so, it's not, it doesn't mean anything anymore. We're so, we're so far away from that now. Well, the movie ultimately is, you know, less about 
immigration than it is about the materialistic excess of American culture. Exactly. And it's, it's, very, it's a very Reagan film, and it's a very interesting funhouse mirror of The Godfather. Yeah. Right? It's, it's taking this noble, grand, serious family epic and turning it into a fucking circus. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's kind of breathtaking in that way. And yeah. it, it's taken me a while to come around in that movie, but the last time I watched it, I just was com- completely enraptured by it. But it's interesting to talk about race and De Palma because he started out his career actually making films that dealt explicitly with race in America yes. in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, it's interesting. We've talked a little bit in the past about that and how strange it is. It's kind of queer and how it informs his whole oeuvre. The obvious place to start is with the Be Black Baby sequence <laughs> in, yeah. in High Mom. One of the best set pieces of his career, technically. Yeah. He talks about having lost control of that sequence uh, in, in mm-hmm. the new documentary and how the... Oh, well, I guess for anyone who's not, not aware of th- this sequence, it comes in the second half of... Is it 1970, Haimon comes out? So it's kind of post, post-civil rights movement, America, and post-Watts, and a whole kind of flowering of, of, of black revolutionary thought from, from black power and the Black Panthers and, and black nationalism and lots of very... Um, the black arts movement. Lots of very kind of interesting ideologies often in concert, sometimes competing. De Palma in this film kind of stages this film within a film, this theatrical happening in which a group of kind of waspy upper middle class white people are promised the black experience, the be black baby of the title, by a group of black actors in radical chic gear. <laughs> and they proceed to... This is, takes place in a kind of abandoned house somewhere. And they proceed to black up the white the, 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 these black guys are wearing white face so it, it you know it traffics in loaded imagery straight away yeah. it starts off gently enough they say come on to, to the, they say to the white people go and touch our hair <laughs> you know feel you know you need to loosen up and they give them collard greens and, and and pig's feet and and then it suddenly kind of starts to spiral out of control and it gets very very hectic and so obviously you know, particularly resonant Again, one of those terrible cliches, as, as relevant now as ever. You know, <laughs> anything that ever made you know a point about anything is is still is still relevant. But obviously, there was a lot of talk, and someone like Paul Mooney, you know, who, you yeah. know who's in the, the Chappelle Show, who would say, you know, everybody want to be black, but nobody want to be black. We had the Rachel Dolezal <laughs> controversy, which I always seem to bring up on this pod for some reason. I talk about it all the time. Talk about ever relevant. Yeah, <laughs> as relevant now as ever. You know, somebody who was posing as as black and was it was complicated but was accused of essentially trafficking in blackness without actually any of the burden of that and what that right. really means and when you had your kind of the, the Michael Brown and and that kind of relentless a couple of summers ago that endless array of, of police killings of black youth in, in this country mm-hmm. and a lot of pop stars and public figures who traffic in black culture for their image you know you're Justin Bieber's of this world we're not coming out and actually or Justin Timberlake Justin Timberlake we're not actually coming out and making political statements and yeah. using their, their force for good so kind of long-winded way of looping back to the, the sequence to say that it's evidence of Brian De Palma engaging in something that was happening in the country and being deliberately provocative and ambiguous about it and something that's obviously marked his workout and we can you know we'll continue to talk about how he's used race which is something that is incredibly tricky and troubling to to discuss i'm sure we'll do so yeah i mean well that sequence in high mom um 
what's most fascinating about it is that it really does seem more than anything a dig at that type of urban liberal audience that self the self-satisfied audience the people who are perhaps watching hi mom right Mm -hmm. so he knows who he's targeting and his movies never make the audience comfortable and i think that sequence was the first time i mean there were there's quite a bit in greetings that that is all about discomfort but i think that that hi mom be black baby sequence it's sort of like the real beginning of De Palma. Not only is it incredibly suspenseful, it's very scary and suspenseful scene because you don't know what is real. You don't know what's authentic. You're constantly questioning what's part of the performance mm. and what isn't. But also, yes, this, this, this explicit discomfort that he wants the audience to feel and he knows who the audience is. And then it's really interesting. I don't know if you wanted to keep talking about Hi Mom, but I was going to move on to Sisters. Mm. Um, yeah, well, on. I was, you know, with, with Hi Mom, that, that idea of kind of aiming both barrels at pretend progressives. It's something I wish there was more of mm-hmm. yeah. in, right. in arts and culture in general because, right. you know, liberal complacency is... At an all-time high. It is absolutely everywhere. Well, yeah. because it's been never it's never been easier to adopt a set of attitudes. Oh, yeah. And, and make them public. Curate your public presence yeah. as, a, as a progressive. Mm-hmm. And, and you've never spoken to, to a person of color in your life. Well, that's what, and that's what's also... <laughs> or you, you, didn't, you didn't know who Dolores Huerta was before uh, yeah. Hillary Clinton used her in her campaign. And yeah, like, yeah, you're going to yeah, get really absolutely. worked up about it. Yeah. Well, that does, that's what's great about that sequence. And we should say that that sequence ends um, with this big sigh of phony relief where all these white people exit oh, the performance. Oh, it was terrific. It including was this wonderful. One, <laughs> yeah. including this what one. a splendid performance. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I, I, it felt so real. It was so amazing. I'm going to tell my friends to come. <laughs> 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 After they were physically attacked. You've got this yeah. guy in a tweed suit like kind of in blackface like <laughs> sweating <laughs> profusely. Oh, it was tremendous. It's, it's, it's really powerful and funny and it never, yeah. it never fails to shock people. Sisters is really interesting because it, as we said before, it, it plays off Psycho, but uh, with the biggest twist right off the bat is that the Marion Crane character is a black man. Yes. And that's fascinating. I think that that hasn't really been discussed a lot. When people talk about sisters, they tend to focus on what happens after that character is killed. It focuses right. on the, the these alleged Siamese twins played by Margot Kidder and, and, and all the, the split screens and all these crazy... Um, riffs on Hitchcock, but it's an interesting contrast with Psycho. When you talk about Psycho, you talk about Janet Lee and you talk yeah. about Marion mm-hmm. Crane. But in in Scott Sisters, Phillip. there's an unknown actor, but you know, mostly unknown to us now. And what's the actor's name? L- Lyle Wilson. And uh, he is the protagonist for the first 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And he's killed off like Marion Crane is. He, his body is buried in a sofa yep. and he becomes this lost object in a sense i mean i think it's very much a commentary on black bodies Mm. Mm -hmm. he's um the show uh, there's something really fascinating going on with this because in contrary to a lot of representation of black people on screen in the in the early 70s that was obviously the big black exploitation boom Mm -hmm. in a post post poitier and respectability era And you've got this very kind of nice suit and tied, respectable middle class black guy. And I often wondered whether the the peeping Tom was some kind of riff on Uncle Tom. I, and, and I never, I, that only struck me fairly peeping, recently. Peeping Tom being the game the, show the that name stars of the game sisters, show. where we first meet the character. He's yeah, he's um, uh, it's like a like a candid camera yeah. type show. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and he's this kind of very kind of respectable, upstanding guy. And obviously, Brian De Palma again shows he he has some awareness of race because their date takes place at the the Africa Room. She's <laughs> 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 kind of just ridiculous, right? And he, the, 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 and the, the character has a response to that when that that's the prize from the game show. Yeah, and he's and he's he, like this big withering. eye roll of like, oh, for God's sake. And then you're you're thinking, well, actually, this would be radical. A, a black lead in a <laughs> in a Brian De Palma film, and then obviously someone tries to cut his dick off and kills him and he doesn't last for more than 28 minutes but and and yet you're right he kind of haunts the rest of the movie like psycho when the the last shot being the car being yeah. you know pulled out of the swamp the last the last shot of sisters is this couch being spied somewhere <laughs> and it, you know the body, well, the the funniest, body will be it's uncovered. the funniest moment in his entire filmography where charles durning plays a private inspector who is have you seen sisters Violet? of course yeah who is brought in halfway through the movie to kind of solve the crime and he's all but forgotten about and the entire case is solved. Everything's done and dusted. There's nothing else left to sort out and if you think the film's about to end and suddenly the camera pans up and you find Charles Durning, the PI, in full disguise up an electric pole staring at the couch. <laughs> <laughs> and that that kind of... We, we may talk about this later but the idea of Brian De Palma as a comedian. Oh, yeah. Very kind of strong comic impulse, and sometimes you're laughing in in terror and fear. You know, his his primary objective for me has always been to play on fears and and push buttons, and the extent to which you're prepared to surrender yourself to that mm-hmm. is kind of contingent on how much you're going to enjoy his films. But I, I often find them very very funny, and and Sisters is an incredibly amusing film. Oh, it is, and I think that the, I mean, obviously his next film was Phantom of the Paradise, which is. You know, a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's and it's pre Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was made right. before that, and it's very yeah. similar in the way that it that it's a musical. It's it's, it's explicitly camp. Yeah. I and I like that film a lot. But uh, it's Carrie is always a fascinating thing for me too because mm-hmm. I really find I find Carrie to be a, an almost perfect balance of tragedy and comedy. Yeah. Um. And I was actually rereading part of the novel recently because I was thinking about this. I loved Stephen King growing up, so I read all these books, and then they just evaporate from your mind as you age. Um, but it's actually an interesting book. It's written in a lot of different voices. But looking at the book, it, it was it's kind of a straightforward, sad story of a girl who's teased. But the movie, though Sissy Spacek has such incredible pathos, and she's so heartbreaking. The movie really like takes a step back and and looks at this high school microcosm in this kind of amused way and uh, treats the villains like buffoons. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of just flat out slapstick scenes. The Piper Laurie character is oh. so over the top that you can't dirty help pillows. But laugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I it, it that's I think that's where he really first m- maintains that perfect balance yeah. so much hair in that movie too William Katz's hair is the ultimate <laughs> joke <laughs> it's true um, uh, the idea of playing on fears you know which I alluded to a moment ago comes up in, in Dress to Kill we were talking about race a moment ago and how the black image is is, is trafficked as an object of, of threat in the scenes when uh, Nancy Allen is being chased through the, the subway system mm-hmm by a bunch of kind of five black guys who yeah. look like they've come out of a kind of the evil Twilight Zone version of Cooley High. Um, <laughs> and there's also well a kind said. of comically <laughs> unhelpful black cop. Yes. <laughs> kind of hilli- but but the, these images, these, these hostile images of blackness are used primarily as a diversionary tactic from the real threat, which is the Bobby, the, 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 the marauding killer. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, we've talked about High Mom, we've talked about Sisters, so De Palma is obviously, you know, he, he's engaged in a cinematic dialogue about race, so he knows 
that images have power. <laughs> you know, he's not a fool. And that, that, those scenes have always made me feel uncomfortable, it, you know, in a way that I wrote about Taxi Driver for, for Reverse Shot and about how Scorsese and Schrader used the black image to foster a sense of threat in the early scenes of the film when, for the first-time viewer, Travis Bickle is, frankly, a fairly likeable, relatable protagonist. His image has, you know, as a psychopath, has blossomed and bloomed to the extent that, you know, you, all, you, all you hear now is Travis Bickle and you think of the mohawk and the, yeah. the marauding killer. But for, for an hour in that film, he is fairly likeable. Not one, if not likable, relatable, and uh, an innocent, and a kind of that kind of thing. Yeah, um, you can see him as a victim of something. A almost. victim of something, uh, yeah. and, and, and threats are piled up against him. Right. Whether it's the black kids in the street who throw something at him, the guys in the um, in the diner, the, the Martin Scorsese character who is, yeah. you know, trebly psychotic, the most repulsive in the movie, truly horrible. Yeah. So, so it's that idea of playing on what a white audience's fears might be, that image of the, the scary urban black guy, but as a diversionary tactic. Yeah. But do you, think the di- the, do you see a difference, and do you think the difference between these two films is that in Taxi Driver, it is actually playing on those fears, and in Tries to Kill, it's playing with those fears? I think there's both. I think Taxi Driver is incredibly complicated, and particularly you know, when, when what we know now about the ending, that initially all the Johns were supposed to be black. The Harvey Keitel character was also supposed to be black, but they couldn't do that because they feared that there would be riots, which there no <laughs> doubt would have been. Because as we know, people always riot after films. They would have come in for heavy criticism. Right. So Taxi Driver is a really difficult one. And it comes from a, a bunch of very strong authorial perspectives. Um, Schrader, Scorsese, De Niro to an extent. De Palma's film is, is a bit more singular. There's always more trickery about De Palma. Always the sense that you can't trust what you're watching. Absolutely. Yeah. Or that you're supposed to be thinking about what you're watching. Yeah. But it also plays into a, a wider context. You know, there's a, there's a great film, which I still think is underrated, despite the fact I bang on about it all the time, Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend yeah. from 1987, which takes you out of the, the, the minutia of these performances and actually what it means, what black actors, the roles that they were limited to in, in the 70s and 80s, playing crimps. Crimps? Made up a word. Criminals and pimps. Yeah, criminals Equals and pimps. Crimps. Crimps. Yayo. <laughs> Yayo. Um, uh, uh, so, so that always, that's always a concern for me watching these films. As much as I can appreciate it on a, on an intellectual level and kind of look at what, you know the tricks De Palma's playing, that kind of wider context hits me in a way even harder. Right. And Dressica was made the same year as Cruising, uh, yeah. which is another movie about urban fears and a movie that scapegoats groups based on those fears mm-hmm. and the decay of the you know, modern city. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, in that case, it was gay people. And I've always thought of those things kind of in the same breath. With There's a director who's prepared to take a kind of almost ambivalent position right? about what they're doing. You know, not explicitly political. But, and also, it's similar in the way that, you know, William Friedkin started his movie career making The Boys in the Band, mm-hmm. and De Palma started his career making these political films and dealing with race. And then they move on to, you know, bigger films, and then they just aren't quite going all the way, but they're giving you very difficult images. Cruising is a film that's still debated to this day, so uh, mm-hmm. we won't go down that road, but like the way you've always felt watching these scenes from Rest to Kill, I've always been incredibly troubled watching Cruising, obviously. But anyway, to get back to Palma specifically, I think that he is very aware of these things. It's just, it's tricky to unknot them. And um, for somebody who's constantly thinking about what his what his role is as a filmmaker, what your role is as a spectator. It's, it's, um, it's great to keep talking about those things. Could we say, could we say more about Trust to Kill? Because obviously you, you have a strong affinity for it. Well, 
Yes. In fact, I want to go back to something that you said near the beginning of this, Violet, which is that you came to De Palma late. I came to De Palma way too early. (laughs) And it was dressed to kill. Oh, wow. uh, It's a good thing that my mother doesn't listen to podcasts because she would not... She would not like me saying this, but she showed me Dressed to Kill when I was uh, way too young. And it wasn't a mistake. She had seen it before. And she said, I think you're going to like this. <laughs> How Mama young? Mama Koreski, what are you doing? Ten? Um, yeah, it's too young. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that starts with a gigantic close-up of, of a woman um, Shower. wa- showering and ra- washing her vagina. Yeah. And then uh, but it's it, it becomes a rape fantasy. Yeah, but it, but it's not Angie Dickinson, so it's okay. It's a, clearly a body it's double. It's okay. <laughs> it was it was it was a it was a penthouse centerfold body double. But I like talking about coming to De Palma Young for the following reason: there's su- such an obvious craft, and there's such an excitement to the filmmaking that even a novice cinephile can see it. Mm-hmm. And I remember actually the. First thing, it terrified me <laughs> when I was at that age. Obviously, I was, I was, my mom says that I turned around and my face was white. But <laughs> the thing that we talked about after was the museum sequence. The museum sequence is so exquisitely rendered and so fascinating in terms of who's watching the screen and who's following who. You have this, um, Strange Cat and Mouse through the Metropolitan Museum of Art, mm-hmm. which was actually shot in Philadelphia, between Angie Dickinson's character, who's this uh, middle-aged, sex-starved housewife, mm-hmm. and this, I'm doing air quotes, attractive stranger, <laughs> <laughs> because he's actually kind of gross-looking, who, with, with these great aviator sunglasses, he looks kind of like Joe Bologna, <laughs> I think, <laughs> if anyone remembers that actor. But... <laughs> No. Somebody listening to this will know Joe Bologna. They're clapping. Joe Bologna, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Trust me on this. So there's this great, it's this, this shot, reverse shot chase through the Met. And it's just this slow moving chase. And then you realize that even though she's following him, he's really following her. And ultimately, they're both being followed by somebody else. Um, of course, who's the killer. I really got it as, as a kid. And I don't think that that is in any way a derisive thing to say. I've been started successfully following people around the ever since. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I started thinking about what a movie could be and what it is. And here was this wordless 10-minute sequence that is just watching people walk and yeah. follow each other. And, and, I, and you know what? I think cinema crystallized in that moment for me. It's visual storytelling, isn't it? And that's what he's so good at. In blowout too, long, long wordless sequences. Yeah. You kind of led in earlier with hashtag problematic. And, and <laughs> kind of often I do thank my lucky stars that a number of films came out before the, the current cycle of very ideologically driven criticism and, yeah. and, you know, think piece culture. Not to be, you know, a lot of these issues are certainly worth talking about. Oh, absolutely. But something it's like, never like, to discount it, but yeah. But the way that, you know, Dress to Kill deals with transgender <laughs> identity. It's kind of incredible. Yeah. Um, but his intentions are not from a sociological, ideological point of view to kind of make a, some kind of point about the experience, I think. And in, in a way, I, you know, watching The Danish Girl last year and seeing a film that was, in, was apparently very well-meaning, <laughs> but incredibly patronising, I thought. Um, but, uh, but something like Dress to Kill, which has nothing but ill intent, <laughs> you know, and, and well, you malevolence. Know, even, <laughs> even, even that is a little complicated because the impetus for... That character, who's the serial killer, who is 
transgender. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, they, they called it transvestism in the movie. Right. The impetus was this Phil Donahue show, which, about, which, is, actually uh, in the film which is in the film, in a split-screen sequence. Nobody uses split diopter anymore. Nobody uses split screen anymore. And nobody, for me, nobody used either of those things quite like De Palma did. Like, like screens really. within screens. There's just yeah. always so much to look at. No, and, and I mean, it, like and everyone. mirrors in that scene too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, the Phil Donahue show is, um, I, I don't remember her name, but she's one of the one, one of the first public interviewed transgender people. And it's a very... She comes. There's a clip of her in the movie, and she's very likable. A matter of fact, she talks about her life, and and she's on screen as this counterpoint to mm-hmm. the Michael Caine character. He's actually watching her. You know, it's not at that point you don't realize that he is the killer, but it's really interesting to see that De Palma put this other point of view in there. It's almost as if to say. This is not a statement about <laughs> men who put on dresses. This is a riff on Psycho, right. the ultimate film about a man who puts on a dress and kills. But the Michael Caine character is much more sympathetic. It's all about how he has these urges that he can control. And it's, that's a very un-PC thing to talk about now. But the insertion of that Phil Donahue sequence is, is, is very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, so even this tasteless depiction of this character is maybe a little more complex than 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 we think. Again, like I think the last time you were on when when we're ta- we're on this the pre-Stonewall series and talking about not necessarily negotiating but just sort of a different type of spectatorship that, you know, you're changing the way that you are approaching something and you're not necessarily identifying, you're not necessarily getting an ideological mm-hmm. pleasure just that you know, deconstructing film, both on a, you know, a narrative level and like a visual level is so it's, it's, that's what makes these films so rich and why you have to sort of put certain things aside. Everything's about everything in our current climate, our current culture is about binaries. It's right Right. and wrong. You should be talking about things in a certain way. You can't be talking about things in other ways. And uh, if you do, you're a terrible person. Right. I mean, you know, De Palma films do not hold up to that kind of conversation. Thank God. But yeah. where they do hold up is is on a you know uh, an aesthetic, cinematic, yeah. and, and visual level, and often that's the first casualty of yeah. strictly bound binary ideological readings. Mm-hmm. The idea, you know, you forget, uh, you know, I've, I've lost count of the, the the number of pieces I've seen that are very trenchant takes on films which don't mention film as an art form, right? As a purely uh, ideological product and yeah. not not as a method of storytelling but, or yeah i mean we've talked about this but just the reactions to Chirac, where it's just like spike lee is doing he's doing like he he's again he's someone who's working in this amazing visual language and no one seems to want to talk about that okay oh, uh, and, and, yeah. and it just they just want to be like this is kind he's, of right he's, he's an art he's an artist yeah you exactly know. <laughs> uh, you know and, and but a lot of that had crystallized before the film had come out exactly you know, he had to no, people had made up their minds before they had seen it he had to make a new trailer because it was the first trailer was too upbeat because you know a kid died in in the film and he was taken to task for that and and i just think it's really worth being vigilant about yeah. that because i fear it creeping in more and more yeah um i i do want to say though that i don't want anyone to get the impression that what we're saying here is that we shouldn't look at de palma in 
political or ideological ways. We should look at him in, a stri- in strictly technical uh, ways or talk about his, right. him as a filmmaker because mm-hmm. De Palma is a political filmmaker. There's no question about it. You can tell from early on. You can tell from some films throughout. You can tell from Casualties of War. You can tell from Redacted. Whatever you think of those films is perhaps beside the point of how we should discuss him. I really believe that he is a political filmmaker, and that can be the politics of the image, that can be actual American politics, that can be foreign policy, that can be war. It can be any way we want to look at it, but I find Blowout to be one of the most moving political films that I've ever seen. I think that even in the ways we've been discussing, I think Sisters is political. And Be Black Baby in in High Mom Mom is obviously political. Great example. So that's maybe another reason why the documentary could go further, right? I mean, mm-hmm. again, it's bound to the the conceit that he's going to talk about himself. But I think that there maybe should be a sequel <laughs> where someone else, where where someone else, maybe a group of mm. film uh, film critics or other filmmakers, talk about how he is a um, a truly important American artist. It's also so very singular the, the, the documentary. You know, there are no external contributors called upon to comment on what he's doing. Yeah. It is just him for two hours which in a way reflects the singularity of his his career right as, again as someone who uh as you said not a uh what was it true what? church true church to palma i'm not a true church to palma but just seeing his energy because again it, it, throughout all of his work there is a real specific energy you want to call it uh, a autor, uh, voice whatever that's fine. But watching him speak about his films, seeing so many clips from the films and just, I've, I left the theater feeling very energized, even though I just had someone basically talk at me for two hours. And I think that's sort of what sets it above. I don't know if you could do that with another subject. And, but it's certainly the feeling I had after watching it was set it above, you know, like a DVD commentary or whatever. To wrap up in the spirit of last 10 films, let's just quickly go around and uh, name a film one film we've seen recently that we liked. I'll go first to give you guys time to think. Inspired by Margaret Barton Fumo's column about John Carpenter's soundtracks, I watched for the first time Ghosts of Mars, and I kind of was won over by it. It's such a strange, strange movie. I did like a double feature. I also watched um, Prince of Darkness, which is like really, well, it's the first of his sort of uh, Lovecraftian inspired films or no it's a second excuse me and it was just so like seeing somebody who really has control over the camera can really tell the story visually and even when it's totally bonkers and absurd and the, the soundtrack of course was just wah wonderful that sound translate do people know what you're doing I, I, podcast? Kiss, mwah. I, 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 I know what you call that it, so thing. delicious italian meal gesture <laughs> I'm now thinking of which delicious meal gesture I'm going to do. <laughs> Maybe a post-curry just satisfaction. Feeling disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Feeling like I can't move. Um, yeah. I saw a film called uh, Peggy and Fred in Hell mm. by Leslie Thornton, which is a kind of cycle of shorts and interstitials made over a number of years, starting in the, the 80s, mm. I believe. The basic premise is uh, a brother and a sister are stranded alone in a post-apocalyptic world with nothing but TVs and, and, you know, various junk and technology for company. And this film cycles through a variety of film formats and theoretical interstitials, and, and it's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. 
I started to get chills halfway through because I, I imagined it being like a dead mother's vision of her children alone mm. in a, in a. And once I got got that idea in my head, I couldn't get it out. And it's it seems to be an influence on things like Gummo and these kind of. I think it's Korean influence. I think the film's still ongoing. I saw it's part of an unfinished sort of series of unfinished art oh. up at the Met. Um, and I thought it was kind of wonderful and terrifying and highly recommend it. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of a gesture I can make. A, a gesture of, of satisfaction from a movie that will not translate. I'm dead. Um, <laughs> I should probably change the movie I was going to recommend because it's not conducive to this jovial atmosphere now. Um, but the I don't Okay. <laughs> Come on, guys, get it together. Yeah, um, we're so close. I watched the documentary of Men in War the other night. Oh yes, which um, Eric Hines has been recommending for quite a while, and I finally saw it. Laurent Bécu Renard's mm-hmm. movie about American soldiers with PTSD. It's amazing. It's very moving. It's um, you know, I felt privileged to be able to see it. Yeah, I love that movie, and I feel dumb for not putting it on any sort of. Uh, Year's best list, but it's just a type of masculinity you never see represented on screen, except for maybe certain somber parts of uh, Eastbound and Down. And I'm not even joking. Like it's just like you don't see those type of men or that kind of fragility. Yeah, it's amazing. It's kind of amazing. Thank you both for coming. Thank you for this, having me. This is wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.